Today, the theme that we are going to consider is that a life built on grace calls us to love one another in a very specific way. The whole of Romans 14 is an extended consideration of how we are to treat one another's conscience before the Lord. This consideration, this tolerance of the conscience of the other is a necessary outworking of Christian love. This theme is enormously practical. It is absolutely timely. And it is, in my experience, poorly understood by many, even Christian leaders. So I couldn't be more excited about today. Uh, Why don't we have a read of the whole passage, and then we'll start pulling things out willy-nilly and reveling in how good this is. Romans chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. And the Lord's people said, hang on. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Oops. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems, I've lost my place here, one person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Whilst the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. 
It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. There's a lot in there, as you can see. Let's get stuck in. What are we talking about here? Here's the setup. There's there's two different case studies provided for us in this passage, which are the flashpoints taking place in the first century church that cause us to consider how it is that Christians are to interact with one another in certain kinds of areas of difference, of belief. The first view regards the eating of certain foods, the the first situation, and the second regards the attitude towards certain holy days. Romans 14.2 tells us that one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Romans 14.5 tells us one person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike, but each one, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. It seems that the, the eating that is concerned here is an issue that's less familiar to us as Christians but would have been the obvious hot topic in the first century when a group of people have lived most of their lives under the Jewish law, under the law of Moses, first encounter the gospel, the question of which parts of the Old Testament faith are we still bound to in the New Testament is is a difficult one. I mean, it's difficult even now with 2,000 years of experience of doing it. Do the Jewish food laws carry over into the the New Testament life as an ongoing observance for Christians? This was a, a huge debate in the early church. And so when Paul says one person believes he may eat anything and one person believes he may eat only vegetables, we have that Old Testament debate applied even more broadly again to other kinds of perhaps Greek philosophical conclusions. Who knows, maybe maybe the vegans have been around and annoying everyone since the first century. That's a joke. If you're a vegan, you don't need to email me. The next issue is that one person esteems one day is better than another. In the Old Testament practice of observing God's law, the people who had faith were required to enact a certain kind of calendar. How often do we think of our calendar as being a thing which is ordained by God? There were uh, a series of holy days to be observed throughout the year, the most important of which happened once a week, known as the Sabbath. One person esteems one day is better than another, says Paul, while someone else esteems all days alike. And it seems that the, the Jewish festal calendar hasn't crossed over into the New Testament faith. This has implications for the Sabbath, which we're not going to unpack today. And the application that Paul comes to in regards to these two debates is a call for tolerance between the two groups. The gospel correctly applied to this situation should have us concluding that group A and group B, group permissive and group narrow, group um, free to eat and not free to eat, group must obey the days and is free to not obey the days, should tolerate one another. They should not seek to judge one another or to oust one another 
or to crush one another or to fight and argue and quarrel with one another, they should be having as their primary motivation in this area a call for unity. They should be hoping to protect the conscience of their brothers and sisters with whom they disagree. And they should be able to expect that their brothers and sisters would encourage them to obey their own conscience in these issues. You have said that, that, that what we are reading here is that this kind of disagreement is not a valid cause for disunity. A, a church which splits over these things is sinning. God has not given us permission to isolate ourselves over these sorts of issues. Rather, this is a time for us to display the gracious love of the gospel towards one another. Now, even as I say that, surely you have noticed some strange things about this call to tolerance that ring in our ears in a not immediately comfortable way. Here's, here's some things to notice. The first is this. This call for tolerance is, is, is based in the assumption that someone is wrong. That someone is wrong. This, this, this tolerance is not about us sharing a perfect understanding of God. Paul clearly believes that at least in the debate around food, one group is right and one group has misunderstood. Do you see that in the text? When it comes to the, the eating of foods, the calling things clean and unclean, Paul insists in so many places. Uh, Romans 14, 21. Uh, no, wrong one. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. This is foods we're talking about. Nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. There's an objective reality. There's a subjective application, but someone is right and someone is wrong. And in this kind of right and wrong, Paul says tolerance. Strange thing number two about this tolerance. This call for tolerance of dissenting views is different to how the Apostle Paul approaches other similar issues in the Bible. Here's a, crack, here's a cracking example. There is no wiggle room whatsoever in the way Paul approaches the heresy of the Judaizers, which insisted that to be Christians we must all be circumcised in obedience to the law of Moses. Galatians 5.2 says it pretty bluntly. There's not much wiggle room here. Look, says Galatians 5.2, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Isn't that strong? He gets belligerent over this issue of circumcision in a way that would have most modern commentators saying that he is being mean and uncharitable and unchristian and should most definitely be banned from social media. He goes as far as to say of his opponents that anyone who is teaching that Christians need to be circumcised should go the whole hog and cut off the whole hog. I like the Bible. That's black and white. There's no, there's no tolerance here. This is, in Paul's mind, the difference, this issue is the difference between Christianity and not Christianity. If you allow yourselves to be circumcised, he says to the Galatians, Christ, no advantage to you. 
That's huge. Let's complicate things just a little bit further. It appears that Paul's absolute, doctrinal, immovable, black and white, do or die, heaven or hell distinction on this issue didn't apply equally in all circumstances. Because wait till you read what he got up to within his own ministry team. In Acts 16, verse 3, we read, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew his father was a Greek. So Paul, who has just told us that circumcision makes Jesus of no advantage to you, went and circumcised Timothy. What's with that? Is this, time, is this time for a quick side note, by the way? New rule. Mates don't circumcise mates. Right? There's, there's no way that a friendship can come back from that once that line has been crossed. How could you ever look each other in the eyes again? Can you imagine a, being there for that conversation between Paul and Timothy? And Paul's trying to convince Timothy that this is a good idea. Timothy? We've got some ministry to do, but before we get there, there's something I have to do, and I'm not going to lie to you, it's going to get weird. On the issue of circumcision, there is clearly some nuance here that we need to understand that determines whether this is an issue of life or death or an issue of Christian freedom. Romans 14 is showing us this principle. In this imperfect world that we live in, in our imperfect churches which we inhabit, Christians, I don't know if you've noticed this, are not going to agree on everything. And sometimes our disagreements with one another are going to be for the right reasons on both sides of the argument, just to confuse things even further. We are not equally certain about every part of our faith and then even in issues where there is a right and a wrong, sometimes those who are right should put up with those who are wrong because both are honouring the Lord. What? We see this in our passage today. Both groups in these arguments believe that what they are doing is about worshipping Jesus and that matters. And there are a set of circumstances in life that Christians will find themselves, where Christians will find themselves disagreeing with each other on how to do Christianity, where God has said the right response for us is tolerance towards one another, more than tolerance, generous love. And so the question then becomes, under what circumstances does this tolerance apply? Under what circumstances does this tolerance apply? In, in church history, this, this principle has come to be called things like Christian liberty or the liberty of the conscience. And here are some rules of thumb that show us when this would apply. The first one is the most important. You cannot, under the excuse of conscience, contradict the gospel. You cannot, for reasons of conscience, contradict the gospel. This is the key to understanding Paul's two responses, two approaches to circumcision in those different circumstances. 
In, in the church in Galatia, false teachers had crept into the church and were saying, if you are going to be a Christian male, you must be circumcised. And if you will not be circumcised, you couldn't possibly be a Christian. It's a gospel issue. The message that in order to gain Jesus, you must do this thing fundamentally undermines the gospel of gracious salvation and turns it into a law of works which must be obeyed. That is the difference between Christianity and not Christianity. And so to the Galatian believer who has been listening to sermons saying, be circumcised or perish, for that person to accept circumcision for the reason of gaining access to Jesus, do you understand? Would have made Jesus of no advantage to them. That's not what's happening in the book of Acts. Paul does not circumcise Timothy in order to save him. Paul circumcises Timothy because within the realm of Christian freedom, it provides Timothy with a missional opportunity. They're going to go to a place where there are a lot of Jews who are going to meet Timothy and know that he's only half Jewish. And I don't know when when those bona fides are meant to come out, but they are going to know that he's not circumcised. And so in order to give Timothy the opportunity to preach the gospel to the unconverted, Timothy is willing to go through. I've got one giggle over here. You can laugh. It is funny. Of all the things that God could have told us to do as a covenant sign, that one seems a little private. Am I wrong? It's one that I've never understood. No, in your Christian freedom, in your conscience, you are not free to contradict the gospel. Secondly, we cannot play the conscience card in order to override scripture. We're not free to do that. If God has given an express command... You can't say, my conscience says no and override him. For example, I can't validly claim that my conscience keeps me away from church attendance because that's for sinners. Because it is God who has ordained that I be here as a part of my worship to him. I can't declare that my conscience demands that I steal from you whenever I feel like it. To do so would break the clear law of God, which is the only thing keeping me away from this stuff. In these two categories of thing, in the contradiction of the gospel and the overriding of scripture, the rule of tolerance does not apply. There is no tolerance for difference on the gospel. It is of utmost importance that the gospel be clear and understood and unimperiled in the life of our church and in our lives of faith. There is no other name by which all men must be saved but the name of Jesus and all who come to him in faith are saved. There is no tolerance within the Christian church for the disregarding of God's clear commands in the word. We are not free to get out our scissors and start hacking away at the bits that we don't like and claim that it's on the basis of our Christian freedoms. No, in these two categories of thing, we don't tolerate difference. Rather, the right response, the response we are called to, is to call people to repentance and to faith to turn away from their sin and turn towards the Savior Jesus. And when you contradict someone in this way on these issues, we do so with the full authority of God behind us. However, this call for tolerance does apply in any area of life where a grace-dependent Christian might reasonably take a different view from you as a result of their understanding of the Bible. 
where a grace-dependent Christian might reasonably take a different view from you as a result of their understanding of the Bible. I mean, the other major issue where this gets tested in the New Testament is on the question of, do we eat meat sacrificed to idols or not? Paul says, the same thing goes in that situation as goes here. God has made all foods clean. Idols aren't real, they pretend. Eat up. That's, that's reality. That's, that's your Christian freedom. That's what Jesus has done for you. But for the person who doubts that that's not real and doubts that they're not sincerely participating in a worship of a false god, to eat that meat would be sin. And so you could understand why a grace-dependent Christian might want nothing to do with meat which had participated in a false religion. This is an area of Christian freedom where even though there is a right and a wrong, there is a call for tolerance between us among one another. The other place where this tolerance applies is on questions where the Bible is silent and God has not spoken. Unfortunately, and I'm sure you've all noticed this, there are a thousand and one different places where we can't just turn to a verse and know what to do. Should Christians use the internet? The Bible doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the internet. And so if my brother or sister decided that the internet is not for Christians, how can I contradict them? I can't do so from, from the word of God, do you understand? And so we must be tolerant of one another. I assume that if any of you have that view that Christians should not use the internet, you are happier than the rest of us. Now, in these circumstances, when God has not spoken, or where reasonable, grace-dependent Christians might read the Bible differently for obvious reasons, we must seek to preserve one another in love and to accommodate each other as far as we are able in fact, we are told that at times we should be willing to go so far as to not make use of our Jesus-one freedoms. Genuine freedoms we do not make use of in order to preserve the conscience of another. Do you see the end of selfishness here? It is not about agreeing on every little thing. That's not going to happen this side of heaven. Not even... <laughs> Not even within a marriage is that going to happen this side of heaven. No, it's about having a sense of proportion and humility and a motivation of selfless love that we as receivers of gracious salvation should be givers of grace. It's a thing that we should not find difficult. Now, this, this principle has been precious in church history. Uh, Wayne, one famous example of that, which comes to us from the Baptist tradition, is a thing called the 1689 Confession, which was a, an alteration of the Presbyterian Westminster Confession, which addresses this issue specifically. It just says it so well, I just want to read it to you, because in two paragraphs they do what I'm going to do in a whole sermon. Chapter 21 of the 1689 Confession says this. God alone is Lord of the conscience. And he has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. So that to believe such doctrines or obey such commands out of conscience, which means outside of conscience or against your conscience, is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith, an absolute, blind, absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience 
and reason also. Isn't that balanced? God is the Lord of the conscience, and he has left your conscience free from the doctrines and commandments of men which disagree with his Bible or aren't found there. Paragraph 3 is also, also worth a read because it puts, the, it puts the boundaries in place. It says, They who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any sinful lust as they do thereby pervert the main design of the grace of the gospel to their own destruction. So they wholly destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of all our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. We should not worry that the principle of the Christian's free conscience is going to lead to sinfulness. We aren't free to do that. Do you understand, in, in, in these kinds of issues where God has made you free, where God has given the conscience reign, statements like, the thing that you have a problem with doesn't hurt my conscience, so what's the issue? Has no relevance. I don't need to agree with you in these kinds of issues before I seek to preserve you and your conscience. If I am ministering to you, or you are ministering to another, your brother or your sister comes to you with an issue over which their conscience has been provoked. I am not comfortable with this. It feels wrong before the Lord. It is my best understanding that I am not free to do this thing. If that thing does not fall into the realm of muddying the gospel or contradicting God, then I must, as a Christian brother, urge you and help you to the best of my ability, to obey your conscience as a matter of obedience to God. Why? Well, in our passage, we were given a number of reasons why your conscience is important. Tolerance has a few reasons for existing here, and all of them matter. Here's one. I must be... <laughs> cautious with my brother or my sister's conscience because I am not their master. I am not their master. Romans 14 verses 3 and 4 say, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another. It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And again, at the back of the passage we read, if we live, we live to the Lord, verse 8. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Is it not sufficient that he be judge? Why do I need to be one as well? For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself 
to God. And if Hugh is going to give an account to God, therefore I don't need to pass judgment on him any longer. I added his name in, it's not in the Bible. Rather, I should decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. You know I said? This is about knowing my place. You don't exist to please me. Your life, at the end of all things, will not be held in judgment by me. And mine will not be held in judgment by you. It is to God we will give an account for our worship. And it is his standards which apply, not mine. So I should know my place. For me to compel you to disobey your conscience is to take the place of God in your life. It's a place I'm not welcome. Secondly, (laughs) this one's really blunt. To disobey your conscience is sin. Isn't that weird? To disobey your conscience is sin. If if, if I was to sit down with any of you who've been well taught and say, define sin to me, you would tell me, sin is the breaking of God's laws. Sin is doing what God said I should not do. Okay, well, what about that Tinternet person? It's not breaking one of God's laws. Why would it be sin for them to disobey their conscience? Well, it's explained to us here in this passage. Verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Think about that one with me. I believe that this piece of delicious, caramelized, salted and aniseeded pork bit of fennel. It's clean. I can eat it in good conscience. I'm breaking none of God's laws. God has made it clean. Sitting next to me is my poor wayward brother who believes to the core of his being. For some reason unknown to him, his his conscience is provoked and he does not feel free to eat the best of meats from the most delicious animal on the planet. From whom we get ham, pork, Sausages, bacon, pork belly. In his heart is the belief that to eat this is sin. So for him to take that delicious morsel and to put it in his mouth, And to swallow it, though God has made it clean, do you understand? In his heart of hearts, he is sinning against the Lord in his motives. He is ignoring what he believes to be true. He is disobeying the rules of worship that his heart tells him. The Lord judges by the motivations of the heart. Also, not just the actions. For him to eat is sin. If he thinks it unclean, then to him... It is unclean, even though God hasn't made it unclean. Can you, can you understand this? Which is why Paul concludes at the end of our chapter, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. My brother who looks at the pork and says, no, I can't do that before the Lord is blessed. 
if he doesn't eat it because he has no reason to pass judgment on himself. Likewise, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Do you feel this? This is a strong word. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. Finishes with a wonderful principle. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever is not in line with, in step with, whatever breaks with, makes uncomfortable, whatever provokes your faith, if you go ahead and ignore that inside voice saying, no, 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 not before the Lord, this is not right. Whatever it is, becomes sin to you. And so we must preserve one another's conscience because for me to lead my brother to sin, as I have just attempted to do by describing the benefits of pork, is to lead my brother to sin. Last one. The reason why it is important that we offer this tolerance towards one another, it should be obvious to us by now, is that if I use force over the top of your conscience before the Lord, I will destroy you. This is not my words. These are the words of the Bible in verse 15. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. For by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. If I'm setting an example in our shared spaces that is leading you into sin, how is that loving? How is that gracious? How is that leading to mutual upbuilding? For me to take a sledgehammer to your relationship with God, how is that Christian? No, you are free. You are free to obey him to the best of your understanding and you're not just free, you should have my help to do it even if that means that I, as the one who has a higher view of my freedoms, the, the stronger position, go without things that I think I have a right to. We had this come up not too long ago when we were organising a combined church camp, and of the churches involved, all but one wanted us to take communion together at one point during the worship on the camp. And for one church and their understanding of the way in which communion should be conducted, that provoked their conscience. No, we can't do that in that situation. That's breaking what we believe to be the rules around how communion should be taken. We only take that at church together on a Sunday. And so, of course, Mike and I decided, well, they're being silly and narrow. How dare they, those hooligans? And we cut them out, and we no longer invite them to camp. And we moved on with our lives, confident in our own self-righteousness that we are free and God has made us free. That's not what happened. No, through the many years of that ministry, we never took communion together in that context. Because though we were free to, do you understand, why would we crush our brothers and sisters and exclude them over that? They can sort that out in their congregation. We can sort that out in ours. And in that shared space, it was not necessary to honour God that we take it. Even though we were free, why would we, by what we eat, destroy the one for whom Christ has died? We're not their masters. They'll give an account to him. 
How beautiful is this principle? How life-giving and how secure should you be sitting here as a part of this congregation expecting that this is how you should be treated when your conscience is provoked? This is a definition of Christian love. And without it, we are not loving like Christ loves. So with all of that said, let's consider two simple applications of this for ourselves today. The questions. The first is this. Do you, in the way that you live, love your brother by being careful not to bulldoze over his conscience with the use of your freedoms? Are you willing to miss out for the sake of another? Out of Christian love and charity? Out of gracious unity? Even in issues where you know that there's a right and a wrong here, that right and that wrong are not undermining the gospel. Do you love your brother? And secondly... Are you, as a Christian who will give an account to the Lord God who has purchased you by the blood of his only son, walking in obedience to him by listening and obeying when your conscience is provoked? To do so is to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and brings no shame upon you but blessing. Let's pray. Father, again, we find ourselves in a position of gratefulness for the wisdom of your word that you have predicted and preempted our every need in the life of faith and given us wisdom and truth to sustain us, Lord. Thank you you that your truth is wise enough to understand human nature and the reality of the world that we live in and it tells us how to live with one another even in places where the flesh makes it complicated. Lord, we thank you for revealing to us today the importance of our conscience in the life of faith. It's a beautiful and precious principle, our Lord. Lord, the pages of history are littered with poor examples of humans treating humans wrongly in issues of conscience, of being arrogant and uncharitable, of being narrow in a way that you aren't, which is a shock. (laughs) Lord, of violently opposing one another over these things. We thank you that you have rescued us. We thank you for those in the faith who have gone before us, who have wrestled through these things, sometimes, Lord, even at the cost of their own lives to make us aware of the freedoms won for us by you, Jesus, and the importance of obeying you in this way. We pray that you would give us resolve and confidence and hope and joy that would lead us to be people of soft conscience and rapid obedience. Father, I freely confess that there have been many places in my life where due to pressures from others. I have bent where I felt I should not have. 
And in doing so, Lord, I have sinned against you and placed the opinion of man over the opinion of God in my life. I confess it freely and I thank you for the grace that comes to me by Jesus and Jesus alone. That all my sin is forgiven and removed in him. And there I obtain a righteous fulfillment of your law. Lord, I confess as well, freely, those times in my life where I have been ungenerous towards my brothers and sisters who are narrower than me. Lord, I ask your mercy on both me and on them. Lord, would you teach me and lead me in what it means to live a life of mutual upbuilding? Would I be a minister of your grace and of your truth who takes my brothers and sisters by the hand and propels them with all of my strength towards you? It is true, our God, that it is you who are the judge of all humans and that it is to you we will all give an account. For those of us who know Jesus, Lord, that's a wonderful promise. For those of us who have yet to obtain his grace, that is an urgent warning. Jesus, there really is salvation in you. And the life that you save us into is beautiful and wise and unsullied. Filled with blessings and joy. Give us more of yourself and more of your truth. By your spirit, cause us to walk in your ways, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.